talk to us today about resting in the hope of Jesus. Resting in the hope of Jesus. And what does that mean? So I'm going to spend a little bit of time kind of dissecting two words, rest and hope. And take, try to take a biblical approach to both of these terms. And really come to terms with what God wants from us as it is in rest and who is and, and how do we have hope. Alright, so let me just start kind of with some, some thoughts about rest. Um, first thing is, uh, how many of you guys enjoy a great Sunday afternoon nap? Like, yeah, I love, okay, good hands are going up. So some of you are already thinking about it, right? You just can't wait to kick off your shoes and get those feet in the air. I understand. I'm, I, I love it. There's nothing like my good Sunday socks up in the air and, and I'm laid back. And, and if I can get the kids to be quiet, I can catch a few Z's. I love a good Sunday afternoon nap. I think that's what Sundays are good for, that kind of rest. That's not the kind of rest I want to talk about, though. Um, and we could dig into more, more scenarios like that. You know, maybe you, you're into golfing or maybe, ladies, you love to go get a spa day or mani-pedi or whatever it may be. Men, maybe you like getting out on a canoe or fishing. For me, I like to ride a motorcycle. I love to get on a motorcycle and just feel the wind and it's just me and, and the road. I just, it's just something about it. Anybody else like that? Okay, Ted, we'll have to get together. All right, so I don't, I don't have a bike anymore, so you got a spare? <laughs> uh, but I, I love that. But let me say this. That's not biblical rest. Now, it is restful, but it's not what we're talking about. We're talking about resting from a biblical perspective. We're talking about and wanting to be a people who rest in hope. Um, so let me kind of come back to rest for a minute. The Bible says in Hebrews 6 that we have a hope that is an anchor for our souls. His name is Jesus. We have a hope that is an anchor for our soul. So the, the imagery of an anchor, how does that help you when you think about hope? What does an anchor do? Well, so big ships, they drop anchor um, to keep from drifting, right? So to keep from being pulled and being drifted into other areas, they drop anchor, they settle in, they park in on this spot to keep from drifting. And then secondly, to keep them stable in the midst of, of rough water, rough sea, rough life, the anchor helps with stability, keeps everything kind of grounded. When the Bible says we have this hope as an anchor for our souls, it's very similar to that. So the anchor, which we're going to talk about, keeps you from drifting and keeps you stable in the midst of some rough stuff. Life is tough if you haven't figured that out yet. There's rough seas and difficulties that come and hard times and challenging times and we need an anchor. Not just any old anchor, the anchor for our souls. There's a significant thing about an anchor. It actually has to be very heavy, right? If, if your anchor is too light, then you drop anchor. I, I can remember we had, uh, my dad used to take me fishing. Neither one of us were very good at it. Uh, but we'd go fishing just to, I guess, get away. And uh, we'd get out in the boat and we'd drop an anchor to, to kind of fish the bank. Well, the anchor he had was just this little, I don't know, it was like rubber-coated bowl-looking thing with a stem. But the boat was big. It was like a big pontoon boat. We dropped the anchor and we're fishing and that thing, we, the boat is dragging the anchor. 
Here's the thing about an anchor. You have to have an anchor that can hold you. Does that make sense? Your anchor has to have enough weight and enough kind of grip to hold you. And it's only then that you'll be able to rest. So the anchor is huge and resting depends wholly on the anchor. Let's talk about rest for a minute. So in, in our lives, we are incredibly busy. We're far too busy. In fact, if you walk around and you, and you talk to somebody and you just say, hey man, how's it going? They're probably going to say, busy, right? Very busy. Man, it's just, life's just busy. And the truth is, it is. Life is busy. It's too busy for most of us. And I want to say a few things that may be tough. Busyness does not equal godliness. I think we think that busyness will equal for us importance or it will equal productivity or busyness will equal a meaningful life. And the thing is, busyness doesn't guarantee any of those things. Sometimes it's just the opposite. You can be busy and not have any of those things. Um, Busyness does not equal godliness. Uh, There's an old preacher Uh, And this will be my old preacher voice, so are you ready for this? There's an old preacher who said, um, If the devil can't make you bad, he'll make you busy. Y'all like that? (laughs) Uh, So if the devil can't make you bad, he'll make you busy. There's some truth to that. Uh, He's going to keep you so busy that you're not walking with Jesus. You're just busy doing a lot of things. So first principle I want to talk about, and we're going to dig into the word a lot today. So if you have your Bible, I want you to hold it and we're going to be flipping a good bit. Um, First principle is this. We need rest. We need rest. I hope you got one of the handouts for today. Um, There's a few blanks and we'll go through and fill those in. If you need one, just put your hand up. One of the men will bring one to you, but... Um, in Matthew chapter 11, so I'm going to throw out a lot of scripture today. I want you to follow with me, okay? Matthew chapter 11, at the end of the chapter, Jesus says this, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find what? Rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And we could dig in right here on this passage and probably spend three weeks right here. But here's what I want us to get. We need rest. The only place we're going to find it is yoked up, tied up, connected up with Jesus. That's it. You need rest. I need rest. You're not going to find it in busyness. You're not going to find it in a vacation to... Cabo San Lucas or wherever you want to go, that, that might be restful, but it's not rest. Rest is yoked to Jesus. And if you're distant from God, you will not be at rest. If you are connected to Christ, yoked up to Him, doesn't matter how busy you are. Isn't it interesting that Jesus says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. And then His next term is a workhorse term. Take my yoke upon you. Isn't it weird that Jesus says, I'll give you rest. Now get over here and let's work. 
That's weird, isn't it? It's because rest isn't really found in what you do. It's who you're with. And you've got to be with Jesus to find rest. Here's the thing. We need rest. And I'm going to walk through two principles here. God models rest for us. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, it basically says this. After six days of creating, God looked at all that He had done, and on the seventh day, God what? Rested. Now, have you ever asked why? Was God tired? Was He exhausted from all His labor? Absolutely not. God doesn't grow weary like we grow weary. He doesn't sleep like we sleep. He doesn't need to rest. He rested to model it for us, to show us what we need. We need rest. The other thing we see in Genesis 2, um, maybe you've found it by now, and I, and I do want you to turn in your Bible. We're going to stay in Genesis for a moment. Genesis 2, I want you to see um, just before he talks about the Sabbath and his rest, I want you to look at chapter 1, verse 31. It says, And God saw everything he had made, and behold, it was very good. I want us to get a sense of the fact that God rests. His rest isn't fueled and isn't fed by his exhaustion. He doesn't rest because he's exhausted, he rests because he's satisfied. You see that? God sees all that He's done. He stands back and He's like, this is very good. And He rests. His rest is fueled by satisfaction, not by exhaustion. I think most of us, when we're looking for rest, it's because of exhaustion, not satisfaction. But again, if we would yoke up to Christ, we would discover satisfaction in Him. Second thing, God modeled, our, God modeled rest for us. And then the second thing is God commanded rest. And that Exodus chapter 20 reference there for you is the Ten Commandments. Number four of the Ten Commandments is this. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. So God modeled for us what He has commanded for us. And this is not just to take a day and go to church. That's not the Sabbath. The Sabbath that God commands is a day for us to to stop working and exercise faith. It's to stop working to try to do a whole lot of stuff and exercise faith that God's going to do more in our rest than we could do in our busyness. We'll talk more about that in a moment. Point number two. We need rest. Second thing, we rest in the Lord. We rest in the Lord. I put it at the top of your outline, Psalm 37, 7. I want you to look at it. This is the old King James Version. I just really love this translation. For this verse, it says, Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Rest in the Lord. Do you notice something about the word Lord? It's written in all caps, isn't it? L-O-R-D, all caps. Well, that's significant because it's a particular name of God, and we're going to talk about that. I want to give you three quick attributes of God or things about God that we rest in. We're going to talk about these uh, briefly. It says, so fill in the blanks. Rest in the power of God. The power of God. 
So in this statement, we're talking about God is able. You can rest in a God who's able. He's not unable. He's not unable to do what he says he's going to do. He's able. So we rest in his power. Secondly, we rest in the character of God. We rest in the character of God. And this, the attribute here we're talking about is that God is good. He's not only able, but he is good. So if you have your Bible, Bible open to Genesis, I want you to look with me again. Chapter 2. <clears throat> I really do want you to see this, okay? So please take your Bible. If you've got a phone and you want to look at the text, I, I think it's important for you to see this. So look at Genesis chapter 2. And what I want you to look at is the names of God. Remember, I, I emphasized a moment ago, the Lord is in all caps here. Um, rest in the Lord, all caps. I want you to look at the names of God. Every name for God is significant. And in, in Genesis chapter 2, we have this repeated reference, this repeated name for God. Look in, uh, let's just start in verse 5. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain. Lord God. L-O-R-D in all caps and then God. So we have two names for God being squished together. Here they are, ready? Yahweh El or Yahweh Elohim. Those two Hebrew names have deep meaning in them. I want to tell you what they are. Yahweh stands for the character of God. It's his essence. It's who he is in his goodness. Every Hebrew reader or hearer of this naming, the Lord God would know that it says this, the good, all-powerful. Elohim, that's the way God introduces himself. In the beginning, God. In the Hebrew, it's Barah Barashit Elohim. In the beginning, God, the all-powerful, creates. He's a creator. No one else creates out of nothing like God does. He's powerful as a creator. But, but when you pair it together, Yahweh Elohim. What you have is the good, all-powerful. Let me tell you something. It would be an incredibly scary thing to have an all-powerful who is not good. Or, it would be an incredibly sad reality to have an all-good God who's not able. I want you to look with me at Genesis 2, at the creation account and how God portrays Himself. Just scroll with your eyes quickly. The Lord God, verse 5, verse 6. Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. Then verse 8. Then the Lord God planted a garden in the Eden. Uh, planted a garden in Eden. And verse 9. And out of the ground the Lord God, the, the good powerful, made the spring up the tree of pleasant sight of good and food. Uh, verse, uh, skipping on down. Let's look. Verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden. Verse 16, and the Lord God commanded the man. Verse 18, then the Lord God said, it's not good that man should be alone. Verse 19, out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field. Verse 21, you get the point, right? Then the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon man. The Lord God took from the man and made woman out of his rib. And on and on it goes. Now look at chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God 
the good, all-powerful, had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Do you see what the serpent subtly leaves out as his descriptor of our God? Did Elohim really tell you that if you eat of that tree, you'll die? That's not true. He's just deceiving you. He might be powerful. He's Elohim, but he's not good. Not Yahweh. He's just God. And he just doesn't want you to know that if you eat of this tree, you'll be like him. Do you realize that without a God who is both powerful and good, we have no hope. So that brings us to our third reality, right? We rest in the power of God. We rest in the character of God. And thirdly, we rest in the promises of God. The reason this is third is because what good is a promise if God is not able to keep it? What is a promise if God is not good? If a promise is not good, it's not a promise, it's a threat. So we have a God who makes promises out of His good character and His ability, His all-powerful ability to keep them. And this is why we have a hope that is an anchor for our souls. It's an anchor. And we can rest in this God. When we talk about rest, we're not talking about sleep or vacations or fishing on the smooth, silky lake. We're talking about faith. Rest equals faith. It equals trusting this God with all that we are. There's two illustrations. There's many more, but two that I want to give you this morning. One is the Sabbath rest. And the second is daily bread. So I'm going to work quickly through these. Um, the Sabbath rest, you know, God modeled that for us and then God commanded it for us. And in the New Testament, um, Jesus and his disciples in, uh, you, can, you can mark this down. Let me see. I think it's Luke chapter 6. I want you to read this later. Luke chapter 6. Hey, I'm going to give you guys some homework today, okay? Because uh, I figured out in the first service that there's too much for me to get through, okay? So Luke chapter 6, I want you to read the first 11 verses there, uh, because here's what Jesus says. He and his disciples are walking through a grain field on the Sabbath, and the disciples start plucking the grain and kind of rubbing it in their fingers and eating the, the kernel. And the Pharisees, who are all about the law, you know, they come down on them. What is going on here? How do you let them eat and work the field on the Sabbath? And Jesus through some conversation, he lands on this. Do you not know the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath? And here's, here's what he's saying here. He's not saying that the Sabbath is no more. It's no longer important. Just forget that law. Just forget about it. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that law was pointing to a greater reality. And guess what? It's here. God gave you one day a week to rest. But now he's given you me. And if you'll yoke up to me, you'll find rest. 
God gave you one day a week because He knows your bodies are weak and He wants you to stop and rest and recover. But now, God has given you me. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. So there's a Sabbath rest that's fulfilled in Christ. And then secondly, this issue of daily bread is, is a great illustration um, for resting and how our rest equals faith. In Exodus chapter 16, here's more homework for you, so write it down. Exodus chapter 16, first 30 verses. Here's what we find. God tells His people who have been wandering now, He says, look, I'm going to make bread rain from heaven. And when you pick it up, it's like white flaky stuff and you're going to say, what is, what is it? Believe it or not, that's where it gets its name. The name manna, right? Manna from heaven means, what is it? <laughs> that's what it means. Sorry, I didn't come up with that. That's just what it means. Exodus chapter 16, here's what we find. We find God telling the people, I want you to gather only enough for what you're going to eat that day. Don't, don't collect extra. Just gather what you need. And in Exodus 16, I think it's like verse 4. Look at what God says. Yeah, He says, The people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them. That I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. You know, the law of God is a test of your faith. Will you trust Him enough to obey? The law of God is a test of your faith. So here's what happens. He says, don't collect more than one day's worth. There didn't need to be any left over. But what did they do? They didn't trust. They collected, many of them collected and held it. Why did they do that? What if it doesn't fall from heaven tomorrow? What if we don't have anything tomorrow? Well, we'll just, we'll take some of this and we'll just keep it right here. Just in case, right? That's not rest, that's worry. Just, just in case. Well, you know what God did? When you read this, you're going to love it. Here's what happened. Uh, Let no one leave any of it over till the morning, verse 20. But they did not listen to Moses. Some of them left part of it until the morning and it bred worms and stank. Uh, I like that word. It stank. And Moses was angry with them. And you could keep reading. So here's, here's what we're learning from the, the Sabbath rest and from daily bread. You know, Jesus told us to pray that way. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. That your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us what? This day. Our what? Daily bread. It comes from this idea in Exodus 16 of a need for daily bread. The whole point of that is that every day we trust in Him. Because the reality is our hearts drift every day to trust in something else. That's why we need an anchor for our souls to keep us from drifting. He wants us to trust in Him. Rest equals faith. Hope. What is hope? We've talked about this, but I want you to turn with me to Hebrews 6. Hebrews chapter 6. There are three kinds of hope in the world. Uh, as you're going to Hebrews 6, there are three kinds of hope, and I'll walk through these very quickly. 
First kind of hope is a wishful hope. You know, many of us this week were probably saying, I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. Right? It's a wishful hope. I hope it doesn't rain, but there is no ounce of certainty in your statement at all. And yeah, it's probably going to rain, right? This week, that's the way it's been. Um, that's wishful hope, right? The second kind of hope is, um, is expectant hope. All right, so this is where you might have some reason to actually expect something to happen. Let's say you plant some seeds in the ground, like you've tilled up the ground, you plant, um, what, what plant? Tomato, tomato plants, sorry. Corn, okay, corn. You plant corn, and then you cover it up. Not a farmer, not a farmer. So you cover it up, you water that stuff, the sun comes out, and you're like, going to get some corn. Expectant hope. That's expectant hope. Like something's actually happened, and you have some rationale, some reason to actually expect a result. But are you guaranteed to get it? Anybody who's a gardening farmer, are you guaranteed a crop? No, man, farming. That's why it's in the Bible all over the place because farming and gardening is, is faith. It, it's total faith. Paul says it this way. Some water, some plant, but what? God gives the growth, right? What they're saying is you can water, you can plant, but it's all on God whether we actually get a crop. So there's expectant hope where you've done some things and you have some legitimate reason to expect it. And then there's biblical hope. And this is what we call certain hope. Certain hope. That's the kind of hope we're talking about from the Bible when we talk about an anchor for your soul. It's a certain hope. So what makes it so certain? Well, number one, hope is based on God's Promises, not our wishes. Hope is based on God's promises, not our wishes. How can you bank on your salvation? Let's just go to where it's most important. How can you know for certain? We just baptized Jenna. All right. So it's just happened. We've just affirmed through baptism her salvation. How can she bank on her salvation? Because God promises. I want us to realize, apart from the promise of God, we have nothing. That's it. Now there's reason that the promise of God has weight as an anchor. And those, I gave you two good reasons earlier because God is both good and powerful. Those two reasons give His promises weight. All right? But it's only the promises of God. In John chapter 3, when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, and he's telling Nicodemus, you must be born again. And he gets to that famous verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. You know the verse, right? Verse 16. A couple of verses before that, Jesus says this. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. What in the world is he talking about? Well, the story, if you want to read it, is in Numbers chapter 21. More homework. Here's what the story tells us. The people of God were griping. They were complaining. And God sent snakes 
deadly snakes. And here's the reality. A lot of people were being bitten by these snakes and dying. Lots of people are dying because they've been bitten by snakes. So they come to Moses and they're like, Moses, please ask God to take away the snakes. Would you please go to God and beg Him to take away the snakes? And Moses goes to God and begs. And God says, I'm not taking away the snakes. But I will provide a way of salvation. So he tells Moses, he says, I want you to take this, uh, this staff and, and, and put a serpent on it and make it in bronze. And I want you to raise it up in the middle of the city. This is the strangest thing I've ever read. I'm just being honest. This is coming from a God who just said, don't make any graven images to worship. Isn't this weird? I mean, let's just be honest. It's weird. I want you to raise it up. What God says, raise up this bronze serpent. By the way, that is the nursing symbol. If if you're familiar with the staff with the serpent, that's it. It's where they get it. Numbers 21. So raise up this bronze serpent. And then God says this. You tell the people, anyone, when he is bitten, if he looks, he shall not die. Now let me ask you. Did that silly bronze serpent save anybody? No. What was it that rescued the people when they'd been bitten? What was it that rescued the people? It was the promise of Almighty God who said, I promise if you just have enough faith to look at the bronze serpent, if you trust my words and look to the serpent, you will not die. And Jesus said, referencing the story, Just as Moses raised up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be raised up. And anyone who looks at me can trust in the promise of Almighty God. Our hope is in God's promises, not in our wishes. And secondly, hope is produced in the waiting. Hope is produced in the waiting. The thing about hope is it is a forward-looking faith. You know, we, we pulled these thoughts together from 1 Corinthians 13. And the end of 1 Corinthians 13 says this. Um, these three abide. Faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is what? Love. It took me a long time to really figure out what that was all about. Why is love the greatest? Here's the thing. Faith is a confidence in the unseen, right? The unseen. And hope is a forward-looking anticipation of a certain reality, right? When we get to glory... Our faith will become sight. And our hope will not be forward-looking. It will be with us. But our love will be with love. Because God is love. So in, in eternity, there'll be no more need for faith in the way we know it. No more need for hope in the way we know it. Because we'll be with Him. So these three abide, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these 
is love. So our, our hope is produced in the waiting, not in the now. So I want to encourage you, wait well. Romans chapter 5 says that we have a hope that will not disappoint. And it says it this way. Endurance produces perseverance. And perseverance produces character. And character produces hope. Endurance leads to hope. Waiting well produces hope in us. We all know that waiting is the hardest thing probably. Number three. Hope has a name. I want to finish, take the last five minutes we have together with Hebrews chapter 6 at the end of the chapter. A lot of talk here about the promise of God, the promises made to Abraham, promises now made to us. Look at verse 17. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, namely his character and the fact that he cannot lie, it is impossible for God to lie. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast. Circle that. To hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this, this hope, as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Here it is. Your hope has a name. His name is Jesus Christ. And here's the incredible reality is that he has done everything needed. Everything needed has been done. There's nothing you can do to make God love you more or make God love you less. He's expressed his love to us, demonstrated his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So are you faithfully resting in the hope that Jesus Christ has done everything needed through his death and resurrection? Are you still struggling to do something, to be approved and accepted by God? Stop struggling and surrender. Rest in the hope of Jesus. Here's the thing. God is ready to rescue you. He's ready. Everything's done. He has the power to do it. He has the character to want to do it. He's able and good. And he's offering to you and me rescue through Jesus. He's promised to save anyone who will believe. That's a promise. It's the only thing we've got is the promise of God. Maybe you're already a Christian. But you've lost your way. Busyness has taken over your life and you've begun to drift. I want to tell you, surrender to Jesus. Just come back. Hear the words of Jesus. If any of you are 
weary and heavy laden, come to me. That's his invitation today. Come to me and I will give you rest. Surrender. Stop looking for fulfillment in what you can do. Be fulfilled in what he has done.